Good morning, Facebook. If you're in the central time zone and good afternoon to our friends on the East Coast. My name is Andrew Williams Smith and I'm a DJ and podcaster from Cookville, Tennessee. And uh, you're going to be listening to another edition of Ordinary Takes, which is a pop culture podcast that's the joint production of OrdinarySpace.org and TeacherOnTheRadio.com. And uh, today, uh, as my guest coming in all the way from uh, North Carolina, is journalist, author, just all around amazing person, uh, Mark Kemp. Um, And I discovered Mark Kemp when I was trying to wrestle with my identity as a white dude in the South, who's also an abolitionist and civil rights activist, but but a huge fan of music. And I was trying to understand the Allman Brothers Band and REM, but I was also trying to understand, you know, the freedom struggle uh, from from Selma to Nashville to to Greensboro to Atlanta, of course, where there's that famous preacher uh, that I love so much. And so I found Mark Kemp when I was on this dig to understand music, roots music in the South. And I found his amazing book, uh, Dixie Lullaby, a story of music, race, and new beginnings in a new South. And from there, um, I found out that he uh, worked for Creative Loafing, a weekly. He'd been out in the West Coast in San Francisco. He's worked for Rolling Stone. He's done a stint in New York. But he's returned to the South, to his homeland, and to the people of the South that he loves so much to continue to write. And currently, he's doing a lot of blogging and Facebooking about music, and he's taken kind of a a straight a straight job, if you will, as a as a journalist for the community, serving the state of North Carolina um, and their arts and culture community. Um, and welcome to Ordinary Takes, Mark Kemp. Hi, how's it going, Andrew? It's so great to to be here. It's uh, I, I watch your Facebook page all the time, and I stalk you too. So yeah, so Mar- Mark didn't know that I was a pretty huge fanboy of his, but I guess that's become mutual because we have so many shared interests around social justice. And you know, I, I meant to tell you off camera, but you know, I follow so many um, people that are kind of doing, you know, the anti-racist white guy thing. And it's such a tightrope that we have to walk uh, because we really want to uh, amplify and privilege black voices, especially uh, during Black History Month. Right. And of course, we know it's not a month for us. It's a it's a career of solidarity and of of being out. Al- I don't even like the word allies, accomplices uh, right. to justice work. But in, 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 in doing so um, uh, today, we are going to come from the place of fans. We're fans of black music and it's black history month. Um, both of us, uh, when we finally agreed to do this just a couple of days ago, we thought, wouldn't it be great to bring in Rihanna and Giddens and Amethyst Kia. And we both probably could have come up with a long list of, of contemporary roots musicians. Um, but I know that, uh, NPR is putting out a big special on that, um, our native daughters album that came out two years ago. Uh, and, uh, Rihanna Giddens has a new album coming out. I think it's going to be in April, uh, so uh, we're, we're going to get into it today. But and Amethyst also has a, a, a new single coming out really soon that I've heard that's great. And we did reach out to her and she was very appreciative. She couldn't because it was last minute. But I just wanted to mention that she, she wanted to come on. So for the people who haven't read uh, Dixie Lullaby or um, uh, I think I've read it and then bought copies to give to friends. Awesome. Can, can you go through just the the elevator version or the, you know, the um, passing at a show, you know, you meet somebody at a show version, a little bit of your, your lineage uh, with the South and popular music. And then we'll get into our topic for today, which is to talk about some of our favorite uh, Black uh, um, artists in the Americana genre. But specifically, we're going to talk a lot about Black women artists today in Roots Music and Americana. But Mark, why don't you just tell, tell our audience, uh, for friends of, of mine maybe that haven't met you yet um, or, or heard of your work, uh, a little bit about your story and how, how closely linked it is to North Carolina. Sure, sure. I'd be glad to. Uh, you know, when I when I got the idea to write Dixie Lullaby, I was at, I guess I was at Rolling Stone or MTV. Uh, I was at Rolling Stone and MTV in the late 90s. And in the earlier 90s, I edited a magazine for many years called Option. And it was an alternative culture magazine. Now alternative has become a marketing term. But back then, it was really kind of edgy and, and you know, on the fringes. And we covered everything from so-called alternative rock to free jazz and world music and contemporary classical and avant-garde stuff. And so for many years, I had been immersed in that kind of music and was kind of 
you know, you get typecast as I'm the indie rock guy or the, you know, alternative guy or whatever. And when I got to Rolling Stone, obviously it's more mainstream and MTV as well. <clears throat> I wrote a piece for the New York Times called Coming Home to My Southern Roots. And I had gone uh, to see a concert at Wetlands in New York by a band called the Screaming Cheetah Wheelies. And Government Mule was also on that bill. And they're, they're both very Southern, contemporary at that time, Southern rock bands, new, new Southern rock bands, because you think of Southern rock, you think of the 70s. Uh, but this was the 90s. And uh, I went backstage that night and um, a couple of members, they all my brothers was there and, and Government Mule. And I started hearing my Southern accent come back in. I was just, hey, man, what's up? You know, <laughs> and um and and I went, oh my God, you know, I'm I'm comfortable back here. I'm with my people. <laughs> it's it's beautiful, you know. And I and I wrote this piece for the Times about how that happens, how I had um guised my southern accent for many years because I was ashamed of it, because I didn't want to hear those, you know, you, you you get this thing when you're in New York, you know, you oh, you're from the South, you're from North Carolina, you is everybody racist there? You know, it's it all these kind of things that I didn't expect to hear. What do you mean? Is everybody racist? You know what I mean? And so somebody even once asked, you know, if I, if I fly down there, am I going to have to be careful when I get off the plane? They were afraid, you know, they'd be met by KKK members or something, um, which is understandable <laughs> right now. But I was just kind of trying to reconnect with, with my roots. And, you know, the way I came up, I came up in the 70s and I, I love the Allman Brothers. The Allman Brothers, when I first heard them when I was a kid, I was like 12, 13, something like that. It blew me away because these were guys who looked like me and they sounded like me and they wrote about the th things that were around me, I, you know, identify and they wore jeans and T-shirts and stuff like that rather than sparkly, you know, glammy sort of outfits. And um, I really, really connected with the Allman Brothers band heavily. And then I started seeing this dichotomy, what what the drive-by truckers call the duality of the Southern thing. And I, I was talking to my girlfriend at that time, and she said, you need to write a book about this. And she was from up north. She was the niece of Jan Winter. So she grew up around Rolling Stone. And a lot of white rock journalists have written about black music and a lot of them kind of scoffed at the whole southern rock movement just a bunch of yahoos down south you know and i wanted to give voice to being a young white kid who grew up at a time when you know when i was in the second grade they, they integrated my school so i remember that integration and i wanted to to kind of tell that story i i can't write with authority about black music. I can write with a, with a, a fan's authority and a rock journalist's authority or music journalist's authority, but I'm not black, you know, I'm white. So I wanted to tell that story, that story of growing up in this very confusing time because back then we didn't talk about tolerance classes or, or diversity. So, so when I was reading your book, I remember now when you mentioned the Willies, uh, Mike Ferris is based in Nashville and he's doing this, he's doing this gospel thing, this blue eyed soul. He's a soul singer and he's got this, I mean, he's a white guy, but most of his band and his backup, backup singers are black guys and it's, and women. It's just a beautiful multicultural kind of soul, uh, kind of stacks records revival. He won a best, best roots gospel album, um, a couple of years ago. And, 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 and just, I was in, D in Detroit, but I did a brief stint living in Atlanta, working at the open door community with Ed Loring. And he's this very liberal minister, but radical left minister, but he, he, he preaches like a Southern Baptist with a huge drawl and it kind of just puts chill in your bones, but it also uh, uh, scares you a little bit. But I, I think, you know, we were all kids in, in Michigan and we kept hearing about Athens, Georgia, and we were so into Michael Stipe and Peter Buck. And we were hearing all this kind of Southern Gothic and then Howard Finster's folk art. And then, uh, you know, they were reading, you know, oh, you got to go read Flannery O'Connor and William Faulkner. So I was, I'm a literary guy too. So I was learning a kind of, you know, this alternate history that I had never heard of before. And of course, my, my dad had marched in the South in the 60s, but for him, it was like so crazy. He was a young, young adult living in Chicago and he got on an airplane, you know, when he was like 23 or 24 to go to Selma, you know, and it was just so 
wild. Um, I think even for him. Uh, and so this this idea that your friends in New York. I, as soon as I moved down here, I moved here in the nineties to go live on a hippie commune. And then I've made my way to a college town after that and worked, worked in academia here in the South for 20 years. But I remember my friends from, from Detroit saying very similar things. Like they weren't sure it was going to be safe right. and they weren't sure if it was safe for them uh, to, to visit. But, you know, I felt safe until, um, until Bree Newsom took down the flag in South Carolina. And as soon as that flag went down in South Carolina, it went up on the back of pickup trucks all over right. where, that, where that, I live. And that was a very pivotal time. Bree, Bree lived in Charlotte, which is where I came back to when I started working on the book. And uh, that was a very pivotal time. And so that, that's where the that's when the line was kind of drawn drawn for the, the where we are right now. We're, where we are, if I wrote Dixie Lullaby today, it would be a, a little bit of a different book because I'm very I have a lot of compassion and, and, and compassion is not bad, but I have a lot of compassion for, you know, for poor, you know, working white people. And, and, and I kind of I don't defend their defend the racism, but I but I put it try to put it in context. Like there's a group called Rednecks for Black Lives. Uh, they're based in the uh, Appalachians. And, you know, it's the book was kind of intended as that way as this is a class thing. But now it's a little different. It's like folks know better and they're still choosing to go down that racist path. So I don't have as much sympathy for white working class people who are going down that path now because there's just too much information. We know too much. You're making a choice now Whereas before you might have been um, influenced by, you know, the white power structure who's trying to divide and conquer. So <laughs> I think we have to go back to, you know, that's why the music is so important because there, yeah. there these alliances go back so far. There right. was so much inter interracial solidarity going on behind the scenes, going all the way back to the union movement and to, to the Absolutely. Great Depression and definitely the civil rights movement that we know of that starts in the 1950s was already going on. And, and the left, the more I learned about the 20s and the 30s, the, the American left was huge in the 20s and 30s. And mm -hmm. so uh, there, there and, and the idea of Richard Wright, for example, is writing his his novels, Native Son and, and, and stuff like that. So, I mean, this this thing has been been with us for a long time. So, yes, we, we can't really excuse folk, but it's interesting to, that we can teach folk about the history because like, for example, redneck being such a contested term, there's mm -hmm. this alternate story that has to do with the red bandanas worn yeah. by the coal miners right. at Blair, you know, at the battle of Blair mountain and in West and in Maitland, West Virginia, where they're, where they're fighting for their lives against the boss, mm -hmm. just to be able to earn a living wage and to be able to, you know, not sleep in a tent. Uh, and, and the rednecks for black lives group really, I, I learned, a, I, I learned a lot. I, and there, there are things, that I wrote about, you know, the denigrating term redneck, you know, in my book. But in a way, the uh, Rednecks for Black Lives group had taught me that, you know, th that was a that was a term of pride. So, you know, I, I, I've gained much more of an understanding of a lot of things since I wrote the book. The book's very old. It came out in 2004. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot that's changed then. I might write it different, differently today. But the spirit of the book would be the same. The spirit of the book is that we were a, um, a unique generation that grew up right at the time they were integrating the schools and we had to kind of fend for ourselves. And what and, and what I did was I listened to music and, and I had a group of friends, you know, some of whom were black, who brought their music into play. I brought our music, you know, the music that I grew up with into play. And we, and we, we kind of learned from each other. I learned from their Funkadelic albums and they learned from my Allman Brothers albums and we and we got tight. And I'm, you know, I live in a small town now, my old hometown, and um, I'm still friends with these guys. And, and we've been friends since, you know, 1970. I don't know if people understand because so many people today don't have that shared experience. But what it meant for people like ourselves to grow up, grow up in an integrated school. I think if, my, if I had not gone to my community was Shaker Heights uh, when I was younger before moving to Detroit and I went to the quote unquote black elementary school there was two and we had uh, voluntary busing so you went and Shaker's a small community but you could just go little ways across town and uh and I was you know in my classroom the only black male and there was maybe three or four black females and it was majority black elementary school 
And it was, that was the formative. It was, uh, you know, it was funkadelic and, and it was disco too. Cause I was, mm -hmm. I was in the seventies. And so I was learning about a, a totally different kind of music, R and B, soul, funk and disco. I mean, earth, wind and fire and that, that song car wash and, um, I mean, and, and, and it was black kids at my elementary school that told me about craft work and my brother and his buddies were all listening to like the Eagles mm -hmm. and, and kiss. And, and I love it all. Now I go back to the seventies and I'm just like, I love, I love every bit of it pretty much with, with few exceptions. But I think growing up in an integrated school is something that I, I can never take for granted looking back and how it shaped me. Uh, to be different than a, a lot of my peers. Because here in Cookville, we have kids coming from these small towns and, and Cookville is a huge white majority city. And if it wasn't for our student athletes that we have at the university, um, the, the university, uh, the numbers of black students would be so small. But but they have these kids coming from these tiny towns across Tennessee coming to Cookville and, and Cookville seems integrated to them uh, because they'd never gone to school with people of color for people from other countries. And we have a, a lot of international students though, that's gone down in the last couple of years. The international students haven't been coming to study in the States, uh, first due to the, the Trump policies and then due to COVID. So uh, we've lost a lot of our international student uh, population. But when I got to Cookville, from from Detroit, I I thought I, I joke to my friends. I said I'd never seen so many white people in my entire life. What's funny is that in the South, we have traditionally lived more closely together because there are more black people in the South. In the North, I found that that because of the neighborhoods are so insular, there's more tolerance of different cultures. But but those cultures live in their little villages sort of and whereas here we kind of grow up together it's it's, it's strange because there's traditionally been more racism here and, and it's because of our history i mean obviously it's it's our history of, of slavery and civil war and all that stuff but th there's um it exists in the north and out out west too in sort of in sort of like it's in sort of ways where i don't really understand this culture i i i uh support them and i'm being very general but, but i support them but I'm, i don't understand them whereas down here we all live together so there's more of an understanding but but a lot of antipathy i guess and, and that's changed so much since like the 60s and 70s i mean we just radically but yet that that antipathy is much hotter than I, I realized even when i was writing my book you know I, the book i ended very on a very optimistic note we're we're finally coming to terms with our you know the south anyway coming to terms with our past and we're healing wounds and all that stuff boy was i wrong <laughs> in, in a lot of ways that that was pie in the sky thinking i just didn't realize how horrible it still is or hor how horrible it was going to get and i think that has a lot with just you know uh people be being fearful and threatened by you know black and brown people becoming well larger population but also in power positions you know it, it's always should have been that way but now that it is we have a lot of people who are who are angry and and resentful for that so that's the issues we're, we're dealing with now more than the power structure beating down just that fear of of the other entering my world you know we, we have this um weird disconnect uh, with folk that I've met when Black Lives Matter came to the rural communities. And apparently, apparently we had a really successful and very large Black Lives Matter event in Cookville, but there was so many death threats and so many of these, these fabricated rumors that this whole, um, uh, there was there was these anonymous emails. I don't even know if they were anonymous, but there were these alleged emails that were sent to um, small town uh, police departments and sheriff's departments all over the country about the uh, the busloads of Antifa. Um, and 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 apparently, whenever there's a progressive event in a town like this, they just assume that there's no progressive people in that town. Right. And so that's yeah. the only re the only way we can have a progressive or a, a, a liber liberating event is if we ship in busloads. The first Black Lives Matter event on our campus took place by a small African-American fraternity on our campus. Uh, and the organizers were maybe 10 black students, and but they called it Black Lives Matter. And just because they called it that, um, the rumor mill uh, on the conservative Facebook sites in town was that there was gonna be busloads 
of black activists being shipped into Cookville to quote unquote rape the white girls. This was in 20, 2016. Right. The bizarre thing about that is that that's absolutely no different from the way it was in 1962 or whatever. You know, no different. It's that those same talking points that are pushed out to these people. Like, I mean, you know, they don't know who Antifa is. They don't know that Antifa means anti-fascist, which everybody should be. They they believe that Black Lives Matter is this communist group that's going to, this is old stuff, old fears, a communist, because the, you know, organizers of Black Lives, the original organizers of Black Lives Matter do um, support socialist policies, which are, which is great <laughs> to me, but to your average conservative who consumes conservative media that, you know, it's just the biggest threat in the world is, oh, my God, they're going to be, you know, they're communists. And they call Martin Luther King Jr. a communist because he also sympathized with socialist ideas. Nothing, you know, it's, I, I hate to be so pessimistic now because I did, there was a sense of optimism to my book, but we're right back there where we were in 1962, 63, 64, you know, fighting the same damn fight, you know, you know, that's why music is so important to me because music is always that place where we can all go and learn from one another. Um, so you're listening to um, Ordinary Takes, which is a podcast uh, based out of Cookville, Tennessee, uh, co-hosted by Ordinary Space Fanzine and Teacher on the Radio. I am Teacher on the Radio, Andrew Smith. My guest today is Mark Kemp, a, a journalist and author from North Carolina. And uh, he sent me this list of fundamental texts for understanding Black Roots music. Uh, we want to talk about some of our favorite contemporary artists today. But saying that we've gone back to the 60s, it was the music that was... Uh, so beautifully, uh, you know, galvanizing. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, Bob Dylan and, jo and Joan Baez, but Not yes, and, and, and Peter, Peter, Paul and Mary. Yes, that's what I grew up on. My parents, like it was Dylan, but oh, it was Odetta. But mm -hmm. the top of your list is the Staple Singers. And mm -hmm. the Staple Singers were like the, the house band, you know, <laughs> for the movement for a while, but they were putting out pop records that were getting radio airplay and that were, uh, that were pop records. So and you way know, to go. A lot of people think of, of staple singers, a lot of white people, I guess, think of staple singers and they think, you know, I'll take you there and those songs. But it, they go so far back, you know, obviously the, the early roots of, of being gospel, but they, they did, you know, albums of Dylan covers, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. They did the best version of Hard Rain's Gonna Fall other than Leon Russell to me and, and you know and with the circle being broken and all this stuff i mean they were crucial to the civil rights movement we, and we hear about bob dylan joan Baez, and and you, you know the the whitewashed version which bob dylan and joan Baez were fantastic and they were important phil oaks but so were staple singers and so many others odetta as you mentioned uh nina nina simone and then you've you've listed out uh leading us into the roots side you li list out you know uh etta james uh and uh, and Ray Ch Ray Charles. Uh, well, what 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 the reason I listed those is because we we were going to talk about uh, contemporary African American Americana in country music, right? Um, because only recently has there been a lot of attention paid. You know, oh look at all the black people in country music. Well, it's been all along we've had black people in country music all along. Fats Domino covering, you know, Hank Williams, Ray Charles with his two modern sounds of country music albums, Solomon Burke, Esther Phillips, Joe Tex did that great, great song, Skip a Rope, which is which is an anti-racism song. And, and and Etta James almost persuaded. I mean, it's a beautiful cover of that song. Uh, the Supremes did a country album. A lot of people don't know that. Bobby Womack did a country album. The Pointer Sisters in the 70s had Fairy Tale, which is a country song. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on because country music comes from both working class black and white musical styles. I mean, that's that's where it comes from. But Nashville put that white stamp. This is white music. This is white culture. This is you know, white identity uh, to country music for so, so many years that it obviously turned black audiences off to that kind of music for many, many years. Now, uh, in fairly recently in the 2000s, a lot of black artists reclaimed their 
place in country and Americana music. You know, Carolina chocolate drops were essential in that reclaiming because they taught us, they taught us that a lot of those old string bands from way back in the 30s, 20s and 30s were African-American string bands. That's where bluegrass came from. You know, Arnold Schultz playing with Bill Monroe and there goes, and there's bluegrass. And, you know, this African-American, the African-American roots of country music are essential. And we've, we hadn't been taught that for very many years. Um, the blues and the blues and gospel are are kind of like the the undercurrent. They're the they're the the root structure of American pop music, mm-hmm. and so you can't get back to that without going through some blues and some gospel. And the similarities between kind of hill, you know, I I, I just recently got into this Harry Smith jag and, and oh. Alan Lomax jag that we were talking about a week ago over Facebook, and and then. Um, you know, getting into getting a, I just bought a couple 78 sides just to hold them in my hand, but the old sleeves say hillbilly and race. And that Mm -hmm. meant, that meant country and and blues Mm -hmm. and, but, and and it was segregated, but there was so much cross pollination at that time that it's, it's, it seems like it seems disingenuous to really, to really purport that it was ever not together. Right. And it, and it's, per, it's perception, it's perception. And then it's industrial and then it's industrial uh, decision making. Because I remember going up in the, in the 80s and stuff that definitely there was white radio stations and black radio stations. And so right. that segre- that segregation that started with, quote, hillbilly and, quote, race definitely continued on. But the, the cross pollinations, you know, if you study Stax records, you study uh, uh, what was going on at Fame and in Muscle Shoals. In, in the studio and in and in the in places like Memphis and Muscle Shoals, this integration and this cross pollination is getting richer and richer. It's never going away. It's just somehow being it's being hid from the general public to where your snap perception are you know that's a black music that's white music, but it's never been that. Somebody it's always been that integrated. Decision. Somebody makes that decision, and, and you know, being in involved in the music industry for years. I saw people making decisions about certain things that were just that that person made that decision, you know? So you have people in power making decisions about what kind of music is what kind of music. And, and then, you know, it's, it's ridiculous because there's no, there's no separating that stuff. I mean, people make music together, (laughs) you know, it's that simple and they, and they influence each other. Yeah, I'd love to talk about what you know. I mean, some of the some of the more recent stuff. That's let's 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 mark. Let's totally go there. So you mentioned the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Mm-hmm. That first record dropped in in uh, twenty ten. It looks like so they're um, they're they starting in the aughts. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The uh, Genuine Negro Jig is the big breakout, which is in twenty ten. They're starting in two thousand and five. So this is literally the last ten years. And then I'm thinking of other things too, like Little Nas X and you know, and Darius Rucker's version of uh, Wagon Wheel. So you have this like huge kind of explosion of Black Roots music in the, in the last ten years. So we're at we're we're at start. Yeah, you know, I wanted to bring Candia Crazy Horse on here, and I did uh, message her, but it was last minute too, because she really. So in 2006, two, two years after the book came out. Uh, and the year that the book came out in paper, my book came out in, in paperback, I began as uh, editor of Creative Loafing and I needed a music editor. And I, my friend Candia Crazy Horse from New York, um, I'd known her and, you know, we'd hung out in New York. Uh, I wanted to get her down there because I wanted a female African-American uh, music editor because we'd had white male music editors at that paper from the time it was established and it was time to change that. So she came down from New York and she told me about Carolina chocolate drops. You know, shortly after she got there, she says, Oh, there's this cool group. Um, They're from around the uh, triangle area and they've been jamming with this guy named Joe Thompson in Mebane, which is this tiny little town uh, who plays like string band country, country music, you know, and they're called the Carolina chocolate drops. And I said, write about them, you know, and that was 2006. And f- from there, you know, they really exploded and to the point that they they had that first breakthrough album that you're talking about, Genuine uh, Negro Jig. And I mean, they've really changed the landscape. I, I, I think 
I think they and, and some others um, were really largely responsible for turning young black musicians on to their, that and the banjo gathering where they met, they, there was a black banjo gathering where the members of Carolina Chocolate Drops met that was already brewing. But it's really made a, a big impact. And, and now you have Valerie June and you have all these other people. Also in Nashville at that time, uh, on, in the main, on the mainstream level, you had Reese Palmer, whose country girl came out in 2007. She's now, you know, independent because like every young, pretty woman who gets swallowed up by Nashville, uh, they wanted to, they wanted, an, they had an image of who they wanted Reese to be. And um, that's how she kind of came through on that first album. So she's since, you know, become herself, much more herself. But all that was going on like in the mid 2000s. And since then, you know, there's just the, the, the dam is broken. Uh, and there's, tremendous amount of good stuff. Uh, Miko Marks came out right around that time too, and she's a tremendous uh, country singer. And same sort of thing happened to her as happened to Reese. She was kind of developed as this uh, pretty black girl who sang country music and had straightened hair. And and now she's kind of come on into her own too, and she's she's independent. She's got a great song called Goodnight America. It's devastating. Goodnight America. It's devastating. Uh, and but but she had a song way back in 2007 called Nine Years Pushing 30, which was about a you know a, a young black boy who had to deal with you know people getting uh, shot by police around him. You have Kamara Camera uh, Thomas, who was in a power rock band called Earl Greyhound. She now lives in Durham and she's doing some fantastic Americana, kind of Neil Youngy sort of stuff. Her song You Wreck Me is kind of kind of got a Neil Young sensibility to it. And then Candia, the woman I was talking about herself, put out an album a few years ago called Stampede. And it's just, you know, it, it, there's more and more and more African-American people uh, joining with other Americana art, artists, you know, and putting out, you know, more and more music. It's just uh, a lot, a lot has happened in the last 10 years to open up that field. Not so much country still, Nashville country, because Nashville country is a corporate thing in itself. But the Americana, the Americana field is just, you know, it's kind of exploding with wonderful roots music from African-American musicians. Rihanna, Rihanna Giddens was quoted in The New Yorker that she still is having a hard time finding a black audience for her music and that she had even pitched some yeah. gigs, you know, that would, would be more curated towards a black audience and that she had it it's been frustrating to her um and i'm sure you know you've been to some big big shows you know i go to a lot of the festivals that are in uh you know there's bonnaroo in manchester and then in this region it's just until before covid there's just a huge number of music festivals and so I'd, i've seen mavis staples i don't know how many times but when you have a band like the war and the treaty that i saw live for i i discovered Aren't war and the treaty Amazing, right? When just, they sing together, you just feel that love that they have for each other. They're so amazing. And but I saw them at a show in Chatt Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, and you know, the, you would have to work your eyes on the crowd to notice a single black face in the crowd. So they're yeah, playing. That, that's a problem. That that is definitely a problem. It's it, it's really it, while there are a lot of artists, black artists in this music. There isn't a large black audience for it yet. That's the next, I think that's the next challenge for people like Rhiannon is to, is to find that audience, is to cultivate that audience, is to make it okay for young black kids to say, okay, I, I want to go see Americana, this Americana artist, you know, uh, for more kids to be able to say that because we, you know, we push, our culture pushes, like I said, they make decisions and they push certain music certain audiences and that's the way mainstream popular culture works you know who it, it, we don't even realize how little we decide in our decision making you know me I, when i was a kid you know I, I listened to what was what was pushed to me and it's even a thousand times worse now it's you know it's this is what you listen to and this is for you and so it's a it's a big challenge uh and i hope that that it will be overcome. That we, that eventually, you know, young kids can. can and, and it's happening with you. Got Afropunk, which has gotten really big uh, from New York, you know. And this is, you know, young black kids listening to, you know, 
experimental music of all kinds. It's not, you know, Afropunk punk isn't just punk, you know. It's musicians of all kinds, musicians of color of all kinds at a festival and, and uh, draws pretty big crowds of predominantly black music lovers. So, so it, do, it is happening, and I think it's just more difficult in the country field. When you see people like that dude, I can't even remember his name, make that comment, you know, and make that tearful apology. Um, oh, Morgan Wallen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good Lord, have mercy. <laughs> I was talking, now I'm sober, and I, I see the error of my ways. And, you know, I hope he does, but, you know, I mean, we've seen that over and over and over and over again. And so when you, you see things like that, you know, if I'm a black kid and I see something like that, I'm like, that's the last thing I'm going to want to go and listen to because that it just means to me in my head a bunch of people who don't want me around. Yeah. Um, Adia Victoria was tweeting about that, and uh, she said she was getting a lot, a lot of great, great support, but also a, a lot of hate. So I think it's just I think we need to keep telling people about this, and and we need to be telling people, you know, who who like that genre of music about this, and then we need to be, you know, and I think it's in the schools. I think I think that's where some of these artists, uh, Jake Jake Blunt, uh, came up through like a. a a, a music program and, I went, and he was getting music tr musical training. And I think that that's maybe, you know, uh, you know, it was my, it isn't my second or third grade music teacher. I love to tell the story, got me listening to the Commodores. And that was when brick house was popular. And I'm like, later on looking back in life, I'm this middle-aged guy. And I'm like, did she listen to the lyrics? <laughs> I was like, I was like nine, eight or nine years old. And she said, go home and listen to brick house. You know? <laughs> and so I think, um, I think this, 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 uh, if music teachers, for example, are, are, are bringing this to the schools and, uh, and, and, and people, the internet is put us into these camps and stuff, but it's also, right. it's also made all this stuff accessible. Right, you, know, you just right. have to, you know, if you, if you click the, the next, you know, the next right click, you know, left click, whatever, you're going to find, you're going to find some of this, uh, this great music. I'm glad that um, you mentioned uh, in our, in our long list, you mentioned mostly women, but you mentioned uh, uh, Ben Harper. Yeah. And just sitting yeah. here talking to you today, I'm starting thinking about, you know, uh, Tracy Chapman, um, uh, my buddy Scott in, in the comments, he was listening at least earlier mentioned JS, JS Andara. He's a kid who came from Kenya mm -hmm. to be the next Bob Dylan. He moved to Minneapolis cause that's where Dylan was from. And he's put out two unbelievable uh, folk albums, uh, uh, yeah, that are just there's a ton. I, I have 10 women listed on there because and I, the reason Ben Harper's on there is because I was getting ready to do a list of the fellas, you know, but I went, you know what, let's just focus on the women because there's so many women doing so many, so much great stuff. And that's just a, a drop in the bucket of, of, of what, what's come out in folk Americana and, and those kind of, but um, you know, you said something a minute ago, you said, we've got to tell them. And I don't, I don't think we, uh, me and you. Oh are, no! Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, no. You know I, I think I think um, I think that challenge is for the black artists themselves to to somehow, um, and, and I don't know the answer, and Rhiannon probably doesn't know the answer, is to somehow go out and rally, you know, younger people, or, or rally is not the word, but but expose younger people and and make it okay. Hey, just make it okay because you and me talking about it ain't going to make young, uh, you oh, know, no. young no, definitely not. But I, I, I'm thinking about my class. You know, I, I've got uh, integrated. You know, as as much as yeah. cookful is talking you about this stuff there. Yeah, talking about this in the in the college classroom. And I have a friend who graduated from Tech. She's a white middle school teacher, but she's in the Atlanta area, so she's got a wider audience. And I'm just thinking, just this big picture. But I don't mean any. I meant the like the 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 most inclusive we people 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 who like this kind of music mm -hmm. that breaks down these kinds of barriers right, right. needs to let other people because i mean i i mean i'm pretty seriously like into this but i probably found out about the you know the carolina carolina chocolate drops five years after you know you found out about them right you know like i mean it's it's just important i think it's really important and then of course now you do, do this and everybody says Rhiannon Giddens, but then they stop there. They don't go down the they don't go down the list. And so and you know what most people that's how they deal with any kind of music. And it's like, oh yeah, I know of so and so who is the kind of 
top on the totem pole of a very, very rich uh, pot of music. Um, and, and that's the way it is a lot. Of, yeah, I know Nirvana. Who Sonic is? You know, um, <laughs> you know, that's just the way it works in mainstream culture. But, you know, I, I, there's just so much out there. And as you were saying before, every time I go to one, you know, Birds of Chicago show or a Kamara Thomas show or a Carolina Chocolate Drop show or a Valerie June show, it's predominantly white. And, and it must be so frustrating to the artists themselves, you know, to, to you know, it, one, on the one hand, appreciating their audience. And on the other hand, God, I wish there was more faces that look like mine out there. So um, I'm Andrew Smith, teacher on the radio, and I'm with Mark Kemp, and we're on Ordinary uh, Takes, and we're talking about the uh, importance of listening to and amplifying uh, Black artists in the Americana uh, uh, genre, and uh, we uh, have talked about uh, Rhiannon Giddens and the Carolina Chocolate Drops, Valerie June, uh, Rissy Palmer, Miko Marks. Uh, uh, did you mention that... Uh, you said something about a song called Good Night America that came out last year yeah. uh, by, by Miko Marks. Marks. I think, and there's, uh, I think uh, Adia Victoria came out with a song about, uh, about the South. And so I think, mm -hmm. uh, and then Rihanna Giddens has released a lot of political stuff last year. So I think the, the, the climate of say that. Layla McCullough, who was also in the Carolina Chocolate Drops, did that whole uh, tribute to Langston Hughes, which is just jaw-droppingly intense. So I think the climate of 2020 um, uh, really brought out some of this, uh, you know, the because the, we started talking about uh, some of the roots of this genre back in the 60s being like with the staple singers. But I think what's happened, I think in 2020 is you have you've had these collaborations um, uh, uh, for these kind of activist singles. So you had uh, um, Under the Devil's Knee written about uh, George Floyd. You had uh, Rhiannon Giddens, I think, did one track with the. Um, I hope I'm not messing this up, but the Resistance Revival Choir. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this? It's like a black feminist activist choir. I think it's mixed. I think it's black and white women, but it's an all women uh, activist choir out of um, out of New York, I believe. I think they're kind of like the what the Freedom Singers were, you mm -hmm. know, uh, back in the day. Uh, you, you, you've seen these uh, folks putting out, you know, these songs that are about the tragedy of police violence, uh, the tragedies of, you know, domestic violence, the tragedies of mass incarceration. So you're seeing these really important um, artists that we're, we're, we're talking about today, also talking about the issues that are so uh, pertinent in, in, in these communities. And I, I also love, you know, for sure, hip hop has been you know, been there right along alongside. So you see this, rena this renaissance really in, in agit, 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 agitational, provocative protest Perfect. music. Yeah. Uh, and and hip-hop has been really an R&B and soul as well. So uh, I think the, and even in film, you know, I think there's been a, really been a, a black renaissance in, in, in cultural production oh, yeah. around, uh, there's, I haven't watched the new movie yet that just dropped, but there's a movie about Fred Hampton that mm -hmm. just came out, came out yesterday. Um, uh, you know, Spike, speaking of all these complicated issues around the South, did you see Black Klansmen by Spike Lee? I mean, there's another example of uh, uh, of really forcing us to, to to look at this stuff in in more maybe in more um, deeper ways than than we have previ previously done. Especially uh, people that look like us, I think, need to keep looking at this stuff too. Yeah, you know, when you what you were talking about a second ago. I see a lot of people in my Facebook feed, my age or in my age, you know, talk about how, you know, they just, they're just, where'd all the protest music go? And I'm like, well, it's there, it's out there. You just have to listen to it. Also, I I, I know a lot of people say, well, I really like Rhiannon Giddens or whatever, you know, but you, you won't find them listening to other black music. You know, it's, I like, I like, I like them when they're playing my music <laughs> and they don't say this. These people don't say this, but, you know, I like them when they're playing my music, but I don't want to hear, you know, um, I don't want to stretch too much and listen to hip hop or something, you know. So it's just, it, it's breaking down barriers. It's, I think it's a constant. It's a constant. We, we always have to be aware of breaking down barriers, wherever those barriers are. 
I was in uh, Smithville, Tennessee, and Smithville is Cookville's like thirty-five thousand people. We've got a big hospital, a university. You know, Smithville is one of these outlying towns within the within the orbit of Cookville. And I used to live much closer to Smithville. I lived in a town called Liberty. Actually, I lived in the woods on a hippie commune. I think I mentioned that to, at the beginning of the show. But anyway, I, I remember I lived on a hippie commune. I, I drove into into Smithville one day, probably late nineties, early zeros. And there's this guy, you know, young white guy with the pickup truck. And in my mind, I'm I'm stereotyping him, right? Yeah. You know, I'm I'm I always got profiled. Like, so I used to have really, really long hair. I'm starting to grow it back out again. Um, but I used to have this really, really long hair. <laughs> really long hair and a go and a goatee. And and when Bonnaroo started, you know, you'd go into a grocery store or something. You're not from here. And uh, are you in town for Bonnaroo? And I'd look at my like my arm like i was looking at my, the, it would be like march you know like bonnaroo is until june you know You're like mm. are you in town for bonnaroo because they're yeah, a little early <laughs> so um so so i knew what it feels like to get kind of profiled but anyway so i'm profiling this kid in my head you know and he and he cranks the engine and he's got really good speakers and he starts blasting nwa you know, in this grocery store parking lot, in this all-white community, in you know rural <laughs> Tennessee, you know, but young white, white guy, you know, young white guys listen to that. I mean, hip hop, hip hop got main went mainstream because it hit the suburbs in the rural areas. That doesn't surprise me that a that a young kid and he could he and I don't know this, so I'm, I'm not saying it, but he could be just as racist as he could be and still going around bumping, you know. NWA, that doesn't really mean a lot unless, you know, when I think of like collaborations between, I don't know, Americana artists and hip hop artists, I'm thinking of hip hop artists who actually are doing, you know, um, socially conscious stuff. Not that MWA didn't, it's just that that was, they were hugely popular at a certain time. So a lot of suburban white guys uh, were listening to it like they listened to heavy metal or something, you know. And that's good. I mean, I guess if, if you're listening, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I see the, the Internet's taught us a whole lot. You know, I, I, I see people who claim to like like the Grateful Dead or Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan or whatever. And they're just as conservative and racist as they can be. So I'm like Rage Against the Machine. I saw somebody, you know, complaining about, you know, I love Rage Against the Machine, but that politics stuff, you know, so that's what they are. You know, it kind of blows my mind what people listen to and then still have where their heads at. I don't get oh, it. hippies, hippies, right wing hippies. Oh is yeah. Such a, is such a big thing right now. And it didn't start. It did not start with the QAnon shaman. No. I, was, I was on a thread. I was on a thread kind of understanding the whole yoga, right wing yoga practitioner, right wing hippie. And this friend of mine who's a fish, a big fish fan and also a deadhead, and I and I do dabble heavily in the Grateful Dead, she mm -hmm. um she showed pictures of this guy that he had been posting on. He he drives this multicolored, looks like the Ken Kesey bus, you know, and he's a, a, a fish head, and he's taking his Ken Kesey looking, you know, fish bus to DC for the insurrection, you know, like and you know, maybe he's gonna sell grilled cheese sandwiches, you know, and play fish while he's trying to, you know, attack Mike Pence. You know, who knows? I mean, the 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 dissonance yeah the dissonance is it's unreal. But you know what? I think it makes I think this is a time of great possibility, you know, and you you we began the conversation uh talking about your book Dixie Lullaby and how hopeful you were about the New South. I, I think the new South is still coming. We've just taken this very bizarre detour because of Trumpism. And I think it is Trumpism. And I think Trumpism, Trumpism is, is destined to die, but it's not going to, it's not going to go, go peacefully into the night. I mean, just like George Wallace and all that other, all that other stuff that, that you were, you were born into. I was kind of a little bit late for, for that, but it, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna fade eventually. Uh, uh, but not not without people talking about the the hard issues. It's it's a um, poison. It's a poison that's poisoned a lot of people. I think in a, you know, I mean, I am by nature an optimistic person. I I have a lot of hope. I mean, if you're you know, we we're talking about recovery earlier. You know, if you're in recovery from an addiction, you by definition have to be hopeful because you you're depending on your hope and your faith that things you know. That things can be better, and so 
by nature, that's what I am. But it's really been tough. The last four years have been really, really tough to, to just to watch things tumble quickly backward and see this cultural, you know, uh, gulf created. It, obviously, it was already there uh, because it doesn't happen. One person doesn't doesn't do this, but uh, it's it's been very um, it's been very difficult. We're still digging our way out of it, and hopefully, you know, the the uh, trial that's going on now um, will help just be, at least put this stuff on the record. Just how hideous and anti non American it is, you know. I woke up thinking this morning, Mark, this is going to sound really funny, but I come from the, the other side uh, and as lifelong activist, I woke mm. up this morning and the thought I had in my head was the quote unquote pro-America side is so anti-American now that it makes us people who would, uh, who would like, you know, have marched against every war and burned a flag. It makes, it makes the anti-American crowd seem so patriotic by comparison. It's like, who well, are know, these people? <laughs> you know, I think it was Phil Oaks that said, you know, I, you know, he had deep love of his country and he was one of the most, you know, uh, out there politically um, uh, active uh, folk singers of them all. You know, I mean, he was a lot more clearly left and clearly more political than than Dylan, you know. But he, you know, he said, I, I love the country. And if you really love the country, you have to, you have to question the country, you know, and that that's what that's all about, you know, burning flags and draft cards and stuff like that. What these folks are doing, so it's my, my really I got that internet lag again. Thankfully, it had gone away for most of our broadcast. We'll see what it looks like on, on the archive. But my guest for the hour has been Mark Kemp, uh, author and music journalist from North Carolina. We've been really wandering through a lot of topics that are dear to us, but we want you all to listen to uh, uh, Black country Americana and folk artists, uh, not just this month because it's Black History Month, but all the time. And yeah. next Saturday on Teacher on the Radio, on live radio here in uh, Cookville, Tennessee at 88.5 FM, uh, we're going to, and, and available on the stream in app. Mark, I'll send you good instructions so you can catch it next week. I'm going to put together a playlist based on Mark's suggestions and my own based on this conversation. And we'll do just two of mostly music, uh, 11 a.m. Central-ish. I tend to run about five minutes late to everything um, about next Saturday, uh, and, and we'll get to hear some of these great songs. Um, Mark, I wanted to ask you to do something very old school and very uh, old-fashioned. Uh, if you will do, and we'll do it right now while we're live, and I'll just I'll just drop it into the mix next Saturday. If you would do me a, a, a radio ID. Now, let me tell you what you're going to say. You're going to say uh, that you're, you can say whatever you want about yourself, and then you're listening to 88.5. FM Cookville, Tennessee, uh, uh, the teacher on the radio program. Um, and I'll drop your voice in between some of these songs that you're going to help me uh, pick out for next week. Would you do that for me? Would you give me a little, sure. a little Absolutely. teacher on the radio ID? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a little older than you, so I'm, I'm forgetful. It's 88.5 FM. FM Cookville. Cookville. And it's the teacher on the radio program. Yep. Mark Kemp, author of Dixie Lullaby, A Story of Music, Race, and New Beginnings in a New South. You're listening to 88.5 Cookville, Teacher on the Radio. So um, what else What else have we have we not covered? Uh, I think with this feel, we're coming up on an hour. This feels like a good hour conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to, to, to drop before we go about our Saturday? No, I, I don't think so. This has been a wonderful conversation. I, I I love talking about this stuff. Uh, and and I, promise, uh, I, I promise to stay in touch. And, and you all, uh, if you love music and you love the South and you're a progressive, you will absolutely adore Mark Kemp's book, Dixie Lullaby. It's that book that I bought it, read it, bought another copy to give to friends. Um, I, and I will um, continue to follow you on, on the socials as you do me. And I'll make sure that uh, we have a way to uh, share this later uh, with your friends and also the, to share the broadcast next Saturday where I'll play a bunch of this great music we've talked about today. So this has been an episode of Ordinary Takes. I'm Andrew Smith, and this is Mark Kemp, and we'll uh, we'll be around. We'll see you online. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in this afternoon and or to the archive version at Ordinary Takes. Thanks, Andrew.